Hey everyone, I've got some exciting news. We're unlocking Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2 and making it available for everyone on our public feed. But if you love our work and want to be the first to listen to Season 3 as it's being released, head over to Patreon. There you'll find break-free versions of past SDS9 episodes, Southpaw and Fight Study, and our other bonus show, Fighters Brew. You'll also find our Liberation Martial Arts program, which is exclusive to our supporters. It's for beginner and advanced martial artists, as well as people just looking for fitness and rehabilitation. It's a gentle, wholesome, and embodied approach to training. Lots of individuals, trainers, families, friends, collectives, activists, and organizations are already using it. So if you want to support our work, and get early access to all our great content, including Season 3 of SDS9, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod and join our community. You can also go to southpawpod.com and find the links there or on our show notes. Thanks for listening and catch you soon. This is Southpaw Deep Space Nine, Season 2, where we analyze Deep Space Nine and Star Trek from a political and historical lens, episode by episode. I'm watching DS9 with fresh and hopefully less fan-biased eyes, and Scott is the veteran Trek fan who knows more context about the show. We are discussing Season 2 of DS9, Episode 5, Cardassians. Scott. Can you tell us about this episode? There's nothing I would rather do. So we start with Garrick and Bashir flirting with each other and talking with each other, and they're at the replimat. And Bashir, he likes to keep playing this game. He wants to prove that Garrick is a spy, that he is more than a simple tailor, tinker, tailor, you know, spy sort of thing. And they happen upon a Bajoran family, but one of their children is a Cardassian named Rugal. Garrick compliments the child on being a beautiful boy, and the boy bites Garrick. It turns out the Bajoran families are adopting Cardassians, Cardassian war orphans. We get a call. Uh, ben is talking to Dukat. Dukat is like, why are all these Cardassian war orphans being raised by Bajorans to hate Cardassians? Cardassians want to end the, the, the war orphan situation. We would have never done anything like that. And, and many of the adopted children on Bajor, on Bajor are taught to hate their own Cardassian selves and that there's something wrong with them for who they are, at least in some of these families. Bashir finds that Rugal may be raised to hate himself and, and uh, is being raised in a controversial way. So they decide that while they're figuring all this stuff out, Rugal will stay with Keiko and, and O'Brien and their family. Bashir and Garrick talk, and 
Garrick says, Ducat knew all of this. Ducat knows this shit. Remember who Ducat was. Ducat was there. Ducat was at Tarek Nor, which we know now to be Deep Space Nine. Um, Ducat was in charge of the withdrawal from Bajor. He definitely knew about these kids. Therefore, it is his fault that the children were left behind. So Garrick is curious as to why he's trying to get them returned home all of a sudden. And even though Ducat feigns regret the decision, Garrick thinks more is at play. And with Garrick, you'll see he always thinks more is at play. And with Garrick, there's always more is at play. And if you're wondering, uh, is there a chemistry between Garrick and Bashir? I think we'd all say there is. <laughs> Bashir and Ben talk. In this case, Garrick is Dr. Horny, not Bashir. At Keiko's, <laughs> O'Brien is whack and says some racist shit and is called upon it by, by his wife um, about Rugal, and who's been nothing but a delight as a guest. Keiko makes Rugal Cardassian food, but he won't eat it. And he wants to go home to Bajor. He doesn't want to go to Cardassia. His self-loathing is palpable. O'Brien tries to explain that racism bad and that not all of one person, not all of one race could be bad or good or anything, even though after saying some epithets that he just did, which he's been trying to kind of doing a little bit in this season, it comes off as a sort of a way. Now, in the middle of the night, Garrick wakes Bashir to go to Bajor on a runabout. And all of a sudden, Dukat calls. It turns out that Rugal is the son of an important Cardassian. Garrick believes that there's something funky going on over there. And while they're in Bajor, Garrick finds this computer connected to all of the, the adoptions that happen, but the tech is old and the systems aren't working. But he's able to fix it and cross-references all this, all this information and realizes that this is all very likely a power play. O'Brien meets Rugal's uh, biological father, who says that for him, family is everything, and he's missed Rugal for his whole life, and that in Cardassian culture, it is not uncommon for four generations to eat together, and that this is, this is huge. And Rugal does not remember his father. He does not know that he was a political adversary to Dukat. And Ben meets with both fathers of, of Rugal to discuss a mediation and custody hearing. And Dukat comes on the station. It is revealed that, yeah, if you thought Dukat was doing some shady shit, he was doing some shady shit. He was the person responsible for Rugal to be given up to adoption. It was a political move to embarrass Rugal's father later in life. But with all this going on, it is decided to be stricken from the boards, stricken from the memory and the records that any of this happened. Rugal will go home to Cardassia. Dukat erases the records. It is a stalemate. Bashir meets up with Garrick and wants to know why Garrick is going after Dukat. And Garrick says, the details are all there. Nice. I like the anachronism of Star Trek. You know, it makes more sense not to have chefs, tailors, and barbers, tailors like Garrick. But they still have them. Otherwise, there's very little human interaction 
and social interaction. Even the bar and games are anachronistic. This is the communism of Trek. Just because you can remove the human element doesn't mean you should. The whole point is social relationships. Society, not individuals and pods. What's the point if it doesn't improve human flourishing? Just efficiency and accounting numbers? Capitalism? We'll get to that. Then we continue with O'Brien's racism that you mentioned. Keiko, to your point, called him out on it. He's the racist white guy with the Asian wife. Damn. Which we brought up before in season one. But this episode made it explicit. Then Keiko does the liberal racism thing. I made a dish your people like. This isn't even my editorializing. If it was just her giving him Cardassian food, that'd be one thing. But the writers wrote it in a way where, you know, it was also pointing the finger at her, not just at O'Brien. Right. Total Nancy Pelosi move. This whole dinner with Rugal was so on point and almost a reenactment of the racism of guests who's coming to dinner, which Get Out also drew from. Mm -hmm. Which is to say liberal racism is not new, nor is it something people only recognize now. They called it out in the 60s, the 90s, when this show was out, and still now. When O'Brien talks to Rugal, he starts from the place of, you people should go back to your country. But there's layers of racism as Rugal's parents are selectively racist. It's the racism of, I can't be racist. I have one POC friend or I adopted a BIPOC child. My wife is Asian. Right. And in seeing that racism in someone else, he has to address it within himself. Hopefully. In real life, people will see racism in others, but not in themselves. So it's not automatic. I alluded to the adoption industrial complex in the last episode with Dax and transnational and transracial adoption. But this episode is more than just that because there's a conspiracy involved. But Rugal's adopted parents does remind me of racist conservative Christians adopting and fostering BIPOC babies. And also, you know, to, to even be more on the nose of children of war needing to be adopted you know, war, war orphans in, in the global South, in the global East, you know, and that was a very common thing in the 90s, especially in certain areas of, of um, Korea where people would be adopted and brought over and there'd be questions of how they were raised with their own culture. Uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, Uh, parts of Africa. There's a lot in this episode. A note to our listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, our fictional narrative podcast, Fighters Brew, break-free versions of our shows, without interruptions like you're hearing now. Bonus articles, Fighters Brew transcripts with extra content, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi or show your solidarity 
by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. I was just talking to somebody about that where we were both old enough to remember that if you grew up in the 90s or 80s, a good percentage of Asians or Africans that you met during that time were probably adopted. But now enough time has passed where there's like second generation and third generation. So you're meeting people who aren't adopted. There's been also more immigration, right? But yeah, it was much more common during that time. But in O'Brien teaching Rugal about racism and essentializing, he has to work through his own racism. And so there's lots of clever writing and social commentary so far. We talked about race science and being able to detect different alien races with biosignatures. And now in this app, we deal with the normalcy of knowing everyone's DNA. And that's how they found Rugal's parents. It's all scary stuff we're dealing with now. I remember in the 90s, DNA paternity tests seemed useful and harmless. So they probably had no idea back then where it would lead with companies owning our DNA records and owning the DNA of plants and even black and indigenous people. Not to mention surveillance capitalism where they know and own all of our data and they can track us and know everything about us and even isolate us from a group. Police have been using a service where they can track people through their phones without a warrant. Who knows what the feds have been doing? So seeing our life signature and knowing which one is us, that technology exists and is created by the biggest weapons manufacturers. Surveillance and weapons manufacturing and capitalism all go hand in hand. The West keeps deflecting to other countries watching everyone when the West also brags how we have the best tech. That means we also have and make the best surveillance tech and everyone else pales in comparison. The biggest makers being the US, UK, and Israel. And that facial recognition will turn into genetic recognition, which will turn into (laughs) racial recognition. I mean, imagine, right? To your point, all of those technologies combining, which I'm sure they are combining. And then, yeah. What do you think Meta's going to do, man? I'm (laughs) Because they're so vague about what Meta is and what that future means. So it's ready player one. Let's just assume it'll be bad. I have to assume it'll be bad. It's, it'll be, it is the matrix. It's us choosing to take the blue pill and giving all of our information, making the algorithm stronger, making all of the tests more powerful, giving up more of our identity. I was even looking at one of them 23andMe things to just try to understand some of my genetic issues to see what I might have to worry about getting older. And then I'm looking at the fine print. And a lot of these companies are making deals with Bayer, are making deals with pharmaceutical oh, companies. Shit. And I'm like, come on, come on, you know? And lately, Zuckerberg has been doing this rehab rebranding campaign where his PR team is sharing videos of him doing mixed martial arts. He's going on these martial arts podcasts that are all reactionary, like Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman. And It's all to capture that demographic that he wants for Meta, to your point, right? He wants men 45 to 18. And who is Lex Friedman? He's like, he's a black belt in judo. He's a black belt in jujitsu. He's Rogan's best friend. He's also a professor of robotics at MIT of questionable 
He is. He's a robotics professor. That's what I'm saying. It's all scary stuff. <laughs> and look at the people he's interviewing. He's interviewing, like his list of people that he's interviewing is, is, is frightening. So if Joe Rogan ages out, you got this guy now who's like 20, 25 years younger than Joe Rogan. And, and people are like, oh, well, he's like the, the, the softer, smarter, nicer one. But I just think he's naive. You think Lex Freeman is naive or his audience is naive? Yes. <laughs> Moving on. Something I haven't seen addressed in 90s sci-fi is the question of privacy. It's also normal in the future that there is none. And unfortunately, that's where we're going. As technology advances the way it does, as information rather than actually helping people, the term privacy will be meaningless. I don't think even 90s writers who were paid to think about the future thought about what that would mean to privacy. More like knowing stuff will just bring convenience. And so long as you're not bad, there's nothing to worry about. Now, Garrick brings up a few times how Cardassians are meticulous record keepers and accountants. This was also brought up in season one, how Cardassia was the galaxy's best accountants. The best accountants are the best fascists. It's so true. People want a comic book villain when a lot of oppression is a numbers game. It's quotas and profit margins and resource extraction. Oppression isn't individual, but systemic. It's not about individual sadism, but cruel accounting. Then later at the orphanage, one of the volunteers makes an allusion about neglect from the Federation and the provisional government. We see more and more with DS9 that the Federation showing up doesn't mean everything is going to be great. With this episode, we further find the Cardassians are not a monolith, which we saw a bit of with a remorseful military officer in season one. And again here, but in a bigger political sense. Gal Dukat has political enemies. Knowing this makes the rest of the season that much more interesting. Then on a personal level, we follow O'Brien as he has to realize that he can't essentialize Cardassians as a group his children and fathers. So we're seeing this message in the political sense, but also in a personal sense, both working to strengthen and move the overall narrative. Also, the character of Garrick has so many good lines. The last thing he tells Dr. Bashir is essentially standpoint theory, that truth is subjective from the perspective of the teller. What's wild is the way history is taught in the U.S. is that the victors and the powerful are the most unbiased and victims, well, are obviously biased. They're the victims. It's a very Cardassian way to teach and think about history. But obviously, that's not how all Cardassians think, as Garrick has shown. Outside of Odo, Garrick is the most mysterious character for me on DS9. But they're different in opposite ways. Where Odo's mystery comes from a lack of information, Garrick's mystery comes from Garrick knowing too much, and we don't know why, at least not yet. So this was a really good episode that didn't need any bang-bang to deliver. He's just a tailor. <laughs> exactly. Scott, what did you think of the quality of this episode? Uh, this episode's like a four out of five. It's just a great episode. Um, they're, they're, it's going to be hard because there's the difference between like the 
above fours is going to be is going to be challenging. But I just think it's it's as okay. So rating it under the guise of like a of a episode of the week episode, it's a four. Uh, as a mythology episode, it doesn't really rank because it's it does develop some mythology, but it's not as important upon the larger arc just yet. But it does give us a little tidbits and and lets us know a little bit more about some characters that might be important later on, particularly Garrick and Ducat. So yeah, I think it's a solid four. I think the acting is really good. I think it does its really best to do the complexities of this story in the in the nineties box that they were in. And I think that point you made is important as we're digging deeper into season two, this idea of thinking about the episode as a standalone episode or how we think about it as an episode of the week versus what does it fulfill for the overall story of the season? I think that didn't matter as much in season one, but now we're seeing, okay, this is something we now need to think about for season two. And I'm sure more and more in the later seasons about like, how does this episode fit into the larger story that they're trying to tell? And without giving away a lot, the the more the show goes on, the less we get the episode of the week sort of episodes. <laughs> you know, I, I can live with that. But they still happen and they're still part of the story. Because remember, we're still dealing with 90s, you know, show runs where each season is a lot of episodes. So network TV even now doesn't do that many episodes anymore. So it is an era that no longer exists. Yeah, network TV might cap at 20 or 22 and that's considered quite a bit. None of them Netflix shows are like more than 10, 12 episodes. Living in LA, I have some friends and know some people who work in the industry and basically what they've told me is in the last few years they've even cut back from the 20 episodes, meaning network to save money. Basically, you know how like Discovery bought Warner Brothers, but there's been this overall, again, the accountants coming over and taking over Hollywood. So even with network TV, it's more cost effective for them to do maybe half the normal number of episodes in a season and then just play reruns. Which was never the case. It was always, they always wanted more and more episodes because of ad revenue, but that's not really the case anymore. So I think this is also part of the recession we're in right now, but they're now at the point of trying to just save more money rather than growth and expand and get even more advertisers. Going back to Discovery and Warner Brothers, there's a couple of films they've completely shot. They're done with it, but they're not going to release it because they don't want to even spend the money. Batgirl. Yeah. Batgirls want Scooby-Doo. There's a Scooby-Doo movie too. And there's some HBO Max original content they're not going to release. And they're just going to write it off as a tax write-off rather than spend the money on advertising this stuff. But also, once they release it, they have to pay extra in royalties. So they don't want to do that either. So there's a lot of cost cutting. So you know, a lot of the ways we were talking about the show is becoming more and more anachronistic. Absolutely. But Scott, can you tell us a bit about the next episode? So the next episode is an episode called Malara, which is about a person named Malara who has some challenges, who comes to the station, and we get a little bit of nice development of Dr. Bashir and 
I will probably reference Susan Sontag. Until then. Bye.